chain of events, cause and effect. We analyse what went right and what went wrong, as we discover that many outcomes can be predicted, planned for, and even prevented. I'm John Chigi, and this is Causality. Causality is a podcasting 2.0 enhanced show, and with the right podcast player, you'll have episode locations, enhanced chapters, and real-time subtitles on select episodes. There's details on how in the show notes. Causality is supported by you, our listeners. If you'd like to support the show, you can by becoming a patron. Patrons have access to early release, high-quality ad-free episodes, as well as other bonus material. You can do this via Patreon. Just visit engineer.network slash causality to learn how you can help this show to continue to be made. Thank you. Therac 25. Radiotherapy, also referred to as radiation therapy, uses high-energy radiation, sometimes from the controlled exposure to radioactive substances or high-energy particles to damage tumoral cells in the body to stop them from growing. Radiation therapy can be used as a standalone treatment or in association with different treatments including surgery and chemotherapy and has been an effective tool for treating cancer for over a century. Approximately two-thirds of all cancer patients will receive radiation therapy as part of their treatment. The first documented use of radiation to treat cancer was in 1896 by Emil Hermann Grubb to treat a patient with breast cancer using high-energy targeted X-rays. By the early 1900s, Antoine Becquerel's and Marie Curie's studies into radium and its physiological effects led to radiation being used to treat an increasing number of skin cancers. By the 1920s, it was better understood how administering multiple smaller radiation doses over a long treatment period was far better than a larger dose in a single session, with the end result of fewer side effects and fewer complications. Over time, external beam radiotherapy evolved into machines that could provide both electron beams as well as X-rays by using the same linear accelerator, or LINAC for short, but use an interpositioned X-ray target that produced X-rays in response to electron excitation. There have been other advancements since then, however, they are beyond the scope of the discussion today. In the early 1970s, the Atomic Energy of Canada Limited, AECL, and Compagnie Générale de Radiologie, CGR, collaborated to develop the Therac-6, a 6-mega-electron volt, or MEV, accelerator, to produce X-rays, and in the following years, the Therac-20, a 20-MEV accelerator that could produce both X-rays and high-energy electrons. The Therac-6 was a revised version of CGR's Neptune model, and the Therac-20 was a revised version of the Sagittaire. Both had been extended to utilize computer control by a DEC 32K PDP 11 23 mini computer. That's the Digital Equipment Corporation's Programmed Data Processor Model 11 and used a DEC VT100 terminal for the keyboard data entry and as a visual display unit, or VDU, as they said in the day. The PDP-11 added convenience features for the radiographer, technician or operator using the machine. However, the machines retained their original interlocking and safety features independently of the computer system. Between the two companies, following the Therac-20, competitive pressures on both sides led to an end to their business agreement in 1981. As a side note, CGR was subsequently bought by Thomson, and then Thomson CGR was bought by General Electric in 1987, becoming GE-CGR, later renaming to General Electric Medical Systems. The Therac-25 was developed during the mid-1970s by AECL and incorporated a double-pass accelerator to save both space and cost, as it was able to use a magnetron instead of the more standard klystron as its energy source. The Therac-25 was similarly named per the previous models, capable of producing 25 MeV of electrons or X-ray photons, and was considerably smaller and in some respects easier to use than the previous models. Unlike the 6 and 20 models before it, the Therac-25 was designed from the beginning to use the PDP-11 for ease of user interface, but also use the computer to monitor previously hardwired sensors directly, making the hardwired interlocks a duplication the designers chose to then remove from the design. The first hardwire prototype, Therac-25, was completed in 1976, with the PDP-11 model available commercially in 1982. By 1987, there were five Therac-25s in use in the United States and six in Canada. For reference, radiation dose is regularly measured in RADS, which is 0.01 joules per kilogram. Most cancer treatment doses are between 100 and 200 RADS. With radiation, we deal with probabilities based on exposure. 
and a 400 rad whole body dose will result in death in approximately 50% of people, and a 1000 rad whole body dose will result in death for pretty much anyone. Although RADs as a unit of measure has been internationally replaced by the Systems International SI unit GRAYS, for consistency with the reports of the instance from the era, we will refer to RADs in this instance. From a patient perspective, they enter the room and lay down on a treatment table with the machine at the head of that table separated by a gap. The head unit is normally positioned overhead and can be rotated around a central axis approximately aligned to the center of the treatment table, such that, Relative to table position, the head unit can be positioned in any place around the full 360 degrees of rotation around a patient's body, based on how they're lying down. The upper turntable rotates different accessories into position to support one of three head unit functions. The first is electron beam. Since a concentrated beam is harmful to living tissue, the intensity of the beam between 5 and 25 MeV is controlled via current limiting by the controller. The scanning magnets spread the beam over a wider physical area with trim adjustments for the operator to focus on a set area. An ion chamber is used to measure electrons. Then we have photon X-ray beam. That introduces a target and that converts the electrons to X-ray photons. In this mode it requires a beam flattener and that looks very much like an inverted cone in shape that spreads the dosage over a wide area. Since this is a dual-mode machine, the way it works is the electron beam passes through the flattening filter and an X-ray ion chamber directed at a treatment target, and this process creates the X-rays. There is a third mode called field light. In this mode, a stainless steel mirror in this position simulates the beam with physical light, allowing the operator to position the head into the correct treatment position. In this position, to allow light to show on the treatment area, all other equipment must be out of the way, hence no flattening filter or ion chamber is between the beam and the treatment area in this position. All that's displayed on the patient is usually a grid of dots for positioning. The upper turntable position is indicated by several microswitches. In addition, a collimator is moved into position for each treatment and is used to then narrow and focus the beam to a set treatment area. Prior to reaching the patient, a tray is inserted for final diffusion called a blocking tray, which has a distinct grid of small holes in a series of lines or strips. The positioning of the upper turntable, however, is critical to ensure the correct equipment is in position prior to activating the beam based on the type of treatment required. Since the operator is using the machine all day, for their protection, the entire treatment room is shielded and sealed and the operator monitors their patient's well-being using a combination of a video camera and a microphone. Each is displayed through a local screen and speaker adjacent to the operator's VT100 terminal outside of the shielded treatment room. With all that background, now let's talk about the incidents themselves. And for the Thurac 25, there was no single incident, but rather six independent incidents in total. Let's talk about each in turn. Incident 1 occurred at the Kennestone Regional Oncology Center in Marietta, Georgia, in the USA, on the 3rd of June, 1985. 61-year-old Miss Katie Yarborough was receiving her 12th treatment to lymph nodes following a lumpectomy. The Therac 25 had been operational for six months without any known incident. Ms. Yarborough was sent to receive a 10 MeV electron treatment to the clavicle area. However, when the machine activated, the patient reported feeling a tremendous source of heat, this red-hot sensation, and accused the technician of burning her. There were no visible marks on the patient at that time, although the skin in that area was warmer to the touch than the surrounding skin areas. Upon returning home, Ms. Yarborough developed reddening and swelling in the treatment area with escalating pain resulting in her shoulder being unable to move and she began experiencing spasms. Her treatment continued and two weeks later, the hospital physicist noticed that she had redness and swelling on her back at the apparent exit point of the treatment beam. By now, it was clear she had suffered a radiation burn. However, the doctors could not explain how this was possible. The physicist later estimated that she received one or two doses of between 15,000 and 20,000 rads. Note that any dose of less than 8,000 rads could not have possibly resulted in such an injury. Subsequently, Miss Yarborough's breast had to be removed due to the tissue damage caused, and a lawsuit was raised against AECL and the hospital later settled out of court. This incident was not reported to the FDA until mid to late 1986. 
The second incident occurred at the Ontario Cancer Foundation in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, on the 26th of July, 1985. 40-year-old Ms. Frances Hill attended for her 24th treatment on the same Therac-25 machine for a carcinoma of the cervix. As the operator activated the machine, it shut off with the error H-tilt, and the dosage displayed no dose and treatment pause. The operator then pressed P, which was short for proceed, to proceed with the dose, which was standard procedure. The same error resulted. The operator then repeated the same sequence over and over, and after the fifth pause of the sequence, the machine went into suspend mode, and upon a technician reviewing the machine, they found nothing wrong. Following the treatment, Ms. Hill complained about a burning sensation, like an electric tingling shock, to the treatment area in her hip. Upon her return, three days later, for another treatment, complaining that the burning hadn't improved, now also with hip pain and localised swelling in the treatment area, she was submitted to hospital the following day. The Therac-25 was taken out of service, and AECL were notified, and a service technician was dispatched to run a detailed diagnostic. The FDA at this time was called the Canadian Radiation Protection Bureau, or CRPB, were informed of a potential issue with the machine's operation. The hospital operators were not made aware that a patient injury had occurred. The AECL technician estimated that the patient had received a dose of between 13,000 to 17,000 rads. Although Ms Hill passed away approximately one year later, losing their battle with cancer, an autopsy revealed extensive damage to her hips as a result of the overdose, such that, had she survived, she would have required a complete hip replacement. In September of 1985, following an investigation into the second incident, the AECL made some software changes to the microswitch position checking and notified machine operators of confirming the upper turntable position prior to treatments commencing. Incident number three occurred at the Yakima Valley Memorial Hospital. Yakima, Washington, in December 1985. A female patient whose name was not disclosed developed excessive reddening on the skin at the treatment site, her right hip, during one of the multiple treatments that month. The unusual nature of the redness was the parallel striped pattern on her skin. Although it was abnormal, they continued treatment until her final treatment session on the 6th of January 1986. Some at the hospital weren't convinced and speculated about what it could have possibly caused the striped pattern. The blocking trays in the Therac-25 could have resulted in a pattern like that was seen. However, these are periodically discarded and replaced, and by the time this theory had been proposed, the trays that were present during the erroneous treatment session had long been disposed of. The AECL were notified of the incident on the 31st of January 1986, but with little to go on, the AECL responded saying, and I quote, after careful consideration, we are of the opinion that this damage could not have been produced by any malfunction of the Therac-25 or by any operator error, end quote. They added that there have, and I quote, apparently been no other incidents of similar damage to this or other patients, end quote. For good measure, they also supplied multiple pages of technical rationale why it was impossible to overdose anyone on a Therac-25. This machine was the one that had been upgraded with the late 1985 code update with the microswitch patch. The fourth incident occurred at the East Texas Cancer Center in Tyler, Texas, on the 21st of March, 1986. At this time, the Therac-25 machine had been operational for about two years and had treated 500 patients without a single recorded incident at that point. Mr. Voin Ray Cox attended what would be his ninth treatment for a cancer on his back, with 22 MeV electron beam treatment regimen of 180 rads over a 10 centimeter by 16 centimeter area of the upper back, with a total of 6,000 rads exposure over a six and a half week period. The operator entered his treatment plan into the VT100 terminal and noticed she had accidentally selected X for X-ray, which was the more common treatment with that machine, and corrected this by pressing the up arrow, changing it to E, and then hit Enter multiple times as all other information had already been entered correctly. The terminal then reported verified, then beam ready, after which she pressed B for beam on. The machine then shut down and reported malfunction 54 and treatment pause. With the cheat sheet, the error code indicated that this was a dose input to error. The machine showed that six monitor units had been delivered, but the operator had expected 202 monitor units. 
The normal response when the machine was paused was to press P to proceed, which upon doing so, the operator was presented with exactly the same error. On this particular day, the monitoring video camera display had been unplugged and the patient monitoring audio had been broken and was due for repair. Mr. Cox began to pound his hands on the treatment door, shouting loudly. Mr. Cox reported that he was in fact treated the first time and felt like he'd received an electric shock. A feeling like hot coffee was being poured over his back and said he heard a buzzing sound and felt a thump from the machine. Having had eight previous treatments on the very same machine, he knew that this was not a normal treatment session, so he started to stand up from the table to get help. It was at that moment the operator had pressed the P to proceed button after it had paused, but now his arm was in the pathway of the treatment machine head unit, and instead it received a dosage. Mr. Cox later said that he felt like his arm was being shocked by electricity and he thought his hand was leaving his body. Mr. Cox was examined by a doctor with redness and swelling in the treatment area, but the doctor diagnosed him as having received an electric shock as the most likely cause of his complaints. He was discharged and the hospital physicist checked the machine calibration and found no issues. The machine was returned to service that day, but was shut down for testing the following day. A local AECL engineer and one from the Canadian office went over the machine and were unable to reproduce the error. An independent engineering company tested the machine and local power supply to the machine as well for issues, but found nothing wrong. On the 7th of April 1986, the Therac-25 machine was returned to service, with the video and audio repaired during the long shutdown period. After the incident, simulations determined he had received doses of between 16,500 and 25,000 rads in less than one second over a one square centimetre area. In the weeks that followed the overdose, Mr. Cox lost the use of his left arm with regular bouts of nausea and vomiting and enduring pain in his neck and shoulder. He was hospitalised with radiation-induced myelitis, which is swelling of the spinal cord, that led to vocal cord paralysis, loss of bowel and bladder control, and paralysis of his left diaphragm. He died from complications from the overdose five months later. The fifth incident also occurred at the East Texas Cancer Center in Tyler, Texas, on the 11th of April, 1986. At this time, that Therac machine had been back in operation for only four days following its long shutdown. Mr. Verdon Kidd attended a follow-up treatment for a cancer on the side of his face with a 10 MeV electron beam treatment over a 7 cm by 10 cm area. The operator entered his treatment plan into the VT100 terminal and, as in the prior incident, needed to change from X-ray to electron mode and again pressed the up arrow, changed the mode, pressed enter several times until beam ready was displayed and turned on the beam. Hearing a loud audible noise the machine had made during the procedure through the now functioning speaker, the operator immediately stopped and entered the treatment room to assist the patient who was moaning in pain. Mr. Kidd stated he felt like there was a fire on the side of his face and later told a doctor that it felt like someone had hit him on the side of the face. He saw a bright flash of light and heard a sizzling sound like frying eggs. The machine had once again reported malfunction 54. Mr. Kidd's condition deteriorated rapidly over the following weeks with increasing disorientation, coma, persistent high fever, and he died on the 1st of May 1986, only three weeks later. An autopsy showed an acute, high-dose radiation injury to the right temporal lobe of his brain and his brainstem. AECL were once again notified. Post-incident measurements estimated the dose Mr. Kidd received was approximately 25,000 rads. Following a series of extended troubleshooting sessions by Fritz Hager, the ETCC's physicist, and in consultation with the AECL with his findings, the AECL filed a report to the FDA on the 14th of April 1986 and sent letters to all Therac-25 users. The letter included multiple suggestions, including complete removal and disabling of the up arrow key as a protective measure. On the 2nd of May 1986, the FDA declared that the Therac-25 was defective and the AECL advisory letter to users did not adequately address their concerns with the machine's operation. In November 1986, AECL provided an updated software release and instructions with the FDA requesting more changes would still be required to be made.
Finally, on the 22nd of December 1986, AECL released yet another revision of their update. And that takes us to the sixth incident. This occurred at the Yakima Valley Memorial Hospital again on the 17th of January 1987. 65-year-old Mr. Glenn Dodd attended with two film verifications of his treatment area, exposures of four rads, then three rads in two separate positions and areas, followed by a treatment of 79 rads of photons or 86 rads total exposure. After placing the film, taking the first exposure, replacing the film and repositioning the patient and then taking the second film, the operator moved the turntable to the treatment position and left the room. The operator pressed B for beam on and the console displayed no dose and there was no dose rate visible and five seconds later the machine entered a paused state. The operator then pressed P to proceed with the treatment and the machine once again paused, this time displaying flatness as a message. Mr. Dodd made an incomprehensible sound over the intercom, so the operator stood and entered the treatment room. The patient reported feeling a burning sensation in his chest. However, the treatment area did not develop a skin burn until later that day. Four days later, the patient's skin developed a striped pattern that closely resembled that on the female patient from Incident 3 in the same hospital some 13 months prior. Subsequent testing estimated the patient had received between 4,000 and 5,000 rads of exposure. In April 1987, three months after the incident, Mr. Glenn Dodd died from complications brought on by the overdose. On the 19th of January 1987, the AECL issued another notice to users to visually confirm the position of the upper turntable prior to beam activation. During 1987, multiple subsequent releases were provided, each with more feedback from the FDA requesting more information and changes before the fifth and final was provided on the 21st of July 1987. In total, six overdoses occurred across 11 machines in service between 1985 and 1987. The doses each patient received in each case were all experimental estimates, since it's not possible to accurately measure the exact dose given the uncontrolled nature of their exposure in each case. Many of the Therac 25 machines went on to treat thousands of patients, but all have now long since been retired and replaced by more modern machines. In total, between the six known incidents, Mr. Voin Ray Cox, Mr. Verdon Kidd and Mr. Glenn Dodd lost their lives as a direct result of a radiation overdose by the Therac 25 machine. So what went wrong? The problem with these incidents is that there are actually multiple root causes, although some are common. I'd like to focus on the two known programming errors that relate to three or perhaps four out of the six known incidents. Actually, I keep saying known incidents because it's very likely that there were more than just six. In Nancy Levison's Medical Devices, the Therac 25 paper, she states, and I quote, there is no way to determine what particular software design errors were related to the Kennestone, Hamilton and first Yakima accidents, given the unsafe programming practices exhibited in the code, unknown race conditions or errors could have been responsible for them. End quote. So let's look at each software error in turn, race condition and then incrementer error. For the race condition, before we walk through the program's basic structure, it's important to quickly mention a limitation of many computers of that era. The DEC PDP-11 instruction set did not have a test set lock or TSL instruction. A TSL instruction reads a value, or in other words, tests its value, and then sets or locks a new value in its place in a single instruction step. It also had no swap instruction at that point. A swap instruction interchanges the values to independent memory locations within a single execution step. So any PDP-11 programmers needed to develop another method for preventing a gap between reading and updating any given variable to keep them in sync for certain operations that use that variable as both an input and an output. Anyway, back to the program structure. The Therac 25 program consisted of multiple tasks. The treatment task had a series of eight subroutines and its state was controlled by the T-phase variable, an integer, from 0 to 7. Each of those steps were reset, datent, also known as data entry, setup done, setup test, patient treatment, pause treatment, terminate treatment, and then date time ID change. Once 
a subroutine had completed, the next T-phase step was set. Of particular interest in this incident was the Datent or Data Entry subroutine. Datent interacted with the keyboard handler task via a shared variable, Data Entry Complete, which was a flag, and this was used to determine that the next treatment's information had been entered successfully. Once the Datent subroutine detected it was true, T-phase was pushed to set up test. When the operator is entering data, they're requested to specify the mode, X for X-ray or E for electron, and this was stored in two bytes in a variable called MEOS, which is short for Mode Energy Offset. The normal sequence of operation, changing between modes will require a movement of the magnets into or out of position, a process which can take up to eight seconds from start to finish for each magnet required, or not, depending on their current positioning when the machine setting is changed. To account for this repositioning of the magnets, the magnet subroutine called the P-time subroutine, which was called one or more times until the magnets were all commanded to their correct position. There is an attempted catch-all for keyboard entry in the P-time routine that checks for editing requests via the keyboard during its subroutine that would, if detected, kick the program back out to the data entry, it's the date and subroutine. So the first bug in this case was that the bending magnet, moving into position flag, was set upon the first entry into the magnet subroutine, but was reset on the first time the P-time subroutine completed, even though in most cases the machine would cycle through P-time multiple times because there were multiple magnets to reposition. The problem was that if an operator completed data entry, then they change the mode and recomplete data entry before the magnet or magnets have repositioned. The machine would not have the magnet set correctly for the requested treatment, but the machine would think that it did. In effect, the operator's screen would indicate to the operator that the machine was correctly positioned when in fact it wasn't. This was the case in incidents 4 and 5 and was rectified in a software update to move the bending magnet move to position flag to be reset only at the end of the magnet subroutine once all of the p-times had executed and all the magnets were in position. But the problem still remained that the program is not checking the current value of the treatment set position before progressing to allow the beam to ultimately turn on. The way in which the date and subroutine functioned was later augmented to include another flag to indicate if the cursor was present on the command line as another layer of protection against erroneous input. Let's talk about the incrementation error. Technically, this next issue occurred first, but was only definitively found to be the reason behind the second Yakima incident, that's incident 6, and was suspected to be the reason for the Hamilton incident, that's incident number 2. The PDP-11 was a 16-bit machine, meaning your variable options were Boolean, which is 1-bit, Byte, which is 8-bits, and 2-byte Word, which is 16-bits. One method for changing the state of a given bit was to represent that variable as a byte and increment that byte by 1. In assembly language on the PDP-11, this was a common practice at the time, as writing a single boolean to make it true or false took more CPU cycles than a simple incrementer to a byte variable. The command for increment byte was INCB and MOVB for moving a value from a source to a destination to set a value. INCB is a single operand and MOVB is a double operand. Remembering back to the setup routine, once data entry or datent is completed, the main routine T phase is set to setup test. Each time the subroutine for setup test executes, that subroutine increments the shared variable called class 3. A zero value for class 3 indicates to the program that all relevant parameters are consistent with the treatment selected and permits the beam to operate. On entering the setup test subroutine, it checks the $MAL variable. If this value is zero, the machine is set up correctly, and zero is also written to class three on the exit of this routine, and sets T-phase to setup done. If $MAL is non-zero, then the subroutine is set to start over. The interlock checking is done by a housekeeper task, appropriately named HKeeper. The upper collimator position check is done by a subroutine called LMT check, short for limit check, I imagine, that confirms the A to D, that's analog to digital limits, are correct. Before checking the A to D, it first checks class 3 and if it's non-zero. If it is non-zero, it calls check collimator, which is check col, subroutine, but if it's zero, it skips the check entirely. 
Since the routine setup test essentially runs in a loop until the lower level interlock checks report back that the machine is in position, the class 3 variable is incremented with each pass through the setup test subroutine. Since it's an 8-bit integer, every 256th time through that loop, class 3 will roll through 0, which will then ripple down to the collimator position check and zero out the check variable, cascading back up to the top with an in-position overall indication. The incidents therefore occurred at the precise scan through setup test, when the operator also pressed set, when the class 3 variable integer had rolled over into a zero value, which then skipped the check completely and automatically progressed to the treatment stage without checking the position at all. This allowed the machine to activate the full 25 MeV beam without a target, without scanning, and the electron beam was deflected off the stainless steel mirror and onto the patient. To rectify this, ACL modified the code to use a fixed non-zero value each cycle rather than using an incrementer. In a modern programming mindset, with higher level languages, this seems so ridiculous. But in the day, the incrementer method was heavily used. I even used it a few times, but not in this kind of situation, that's for sure. Beyond this, the Therac machines had some ongoing odd behavior. Whilst the six known incidents are disturbing enough, the fact is that the Therac 25, and it's also said the Therac 20 and the Therac 6, particularly the VT100 terminal interfaces, weren't the most reliable. They didn't break exactly, but the operators had become accustomed to frequent malfunction errors that had no patient consequences on the earlier machines since the position interlock checking was handled by hard wiring and not by code. Simply pressing P to proceed as many times as necessary for the machine to follow the treatment program had become a regular enough occurrence that most operators just accepted it was a bit buggy and didn't give it another thought. In modern times, we've come to understand this as a normalization of deviation blind spot. When new users would come to learn the machine, they were just told that's just the way the machine is. And although it's not clear that ATCL were notified of these kinds of bugs previously, evidence suggests that very few changes were made to correct them over time. Whilst the six established cases clearly were real-world consequences of malfunctions on the Therac 25, this suggests that it was extremely likely that there were more, perhaps considerably more. Although if there were, perhaps their consequences were likely not immediately obvious or resulted in subsequent complications that were never traced back to the treatment by the Therac 25 machine. During the course of the fallout from the second incident, the AECL was forced to provide some kind of explanation and remedy. The AECL were notified and determined that whilst they could not replicate the error, a microswitch failure was the most likely cause, stating that it, and I quote, cannot be firm on the exact cause of the accident, but can only suspect, end quote. It's not, not really inspiring confidence. Just quickly, the microswitches, there are three of them. These inputs are therefore a 3-bit word value that indicates the position of the turntable. A 1-bit error caused by an open circuit position could produce an incorrect position message. The AECL requested that operators always visually confirm the turntable position prior to treatment as an added precautionary measure. The AECL issued a voluntary recall on all Therac 25s in service at that time, classifying it as a Class 2, which means, and I quote, a situation in which the use of or exposure to a violative product may cause temporary or medically reversible adverse health consequences or where the probability of serious adverse health consequences is remote. End quote. Given the fact future failures would result in the death of patients, I think that's a bit light. Anyhow, in addition, they produced a software update to the Therac 25 machines that tracked the transient states between switch activations to add an alarm if they weren't in transit or were in transit for too long. Interestingly, in their report that accompanied these code improvements, they stated, and I quote, analysis of the hazard rate of the new solution indicates an improvement over the old system by at least five orders of magnitude, end quote. I gotta say, I'm not a fan of the expression an order of magnitude, since it's typically used as a throwaway exaggeration meant to placate someone else in a debate, maybe, without actually having a hard, real number that you can stand behind. Realistically, though, five orders of magnitude 
equates to a 10 to the fifth power reduction of probability of an undetected fault, which is kind of a bit of a stretch. They haven't added additional sensors. They're using the exact same sensors. They didn't change the wiring for normally open and normally closed to make them fail-safe inputs. I mean, if you look at the failure rate of a simple microswitch, putting two in parallel for a redundant input, run that through a 1 plus 1 standby Markov model to get an estimate of improvement of probability, you won't get a five-order-of-magnitude improvement with any real-world failure rate. So how can you get that just by timing rising and falling edge triggers in software? It's ridiculous. But hold on a second, though. If the error couldn't be reproduced, just how certain could the AECL be that the microswitches were actually the issue at the time? The problem was it was dosing even when it said it wasn't. And if the microswitches were in fact the issue, then surely that's a secondary concern as to why the machine was showing no dose when in fact a dose had been given. Either way, the CRPB audited the subsequent modifications provided by the AECL. Gordon Simons from the CRPB made four recommendations for improvement in the audit report to meet compliance with the Radiation Emitting Devices, or RED, Act of 1971. Some of those recommendations that were relevant to this incident was improvements to the microswitch design, such as adding a potentiometer as a secondary confirmation, and changing the error handling of the software, primarily driving a treatment suspend on error rather than allowing a proceed. Despite an attorney's letter on behalf of the Hamilton Clinic that was sent in January 1986 requesting an additional position confirmation device be added, the AECL did not retrofit one to the design at that time. Interestingly enough, the 1987 incident highlighted the far more probable cause of the second incident and retrospectively the microswitch solution demonstrates the futility of implementing a control on something where you never figured out what the root cause was in the first place begs the question, how did they test it? There's never been any significant evidence presented that I could find on exactly how they developed the Therac 25 software, let alone how they tested it. Based on the similarities between the machines, it's been hypothesized that the code for the Therac 25 was derived primarily from the Therac 6 model that came before it, with some influence from the Therac 20's code. If that's true, it's also extremely likely that errors that existed in the original code long before the 25 model was made, and these errors were inadvertently realized with horrible consequences in the Therac 25 through the removal of the interdependent hardware interlocking. The AECL published a few documents around the time of the Therac 25's release, including a fault tree analysis. In March 1983, the fault tree analysis for the Therac 25 makes some notable comments, including programming errors have been reduced by extensive testing on a hardware simulator and under field conditions on teletherapy units. Any residual software errors are not included in our analysis. Program software does not degrade due to wear, fatigue, or reproduction process. And computer execution errors are caused by faulty hardware components and by soft random errors introduced by alpha particles and electromagnetic noise. Additionally, in the fault tree, they set the probability of the computer selecting the wrong energy as a 10 to the power of 11 probability, with no explanation as to why. That's incredibly remote. And honestly, that's not a very good fault tree. Apart from this, the many advisories and updates back and forth with the FDA, they offered little else regarding their software quality measures and assurances. With all of these incidents, the very first one was never reported. Why not? At the time, reporting regulations for incidents involving medical devices or apparatus specifically applied to manufacturers and importers, whereby they are required to report deaths, serious injuries, or malfunctions that could result in deaths or serious injuries. The law was amended in 1990 to require that healthcare facilities reported any incidents to both the manufacturer and the FDA, which makes more sense. Of greater concern to me, though, was the lack of will to stop their use entirely until the actual, true root cause of the overdoses could be determined. It reminds me a bit of the situation with the de Havilland Comet in the 50s, just 10 weeks after the fleet was grounded after the first crash, with no idea what caused the first crash. Under pressure from BOAC, the British government gave the go-ahead to BOAC to return the comets to service. And when they did, 16 days later, there was a second crash. 
We talked about that in episode 10. The sequence of events here is very similar. The AECL couldn't figure out what was wrong, so they just pulled together their best effort. Micro-switches were to blame first time around. Electric shock was to blame and just carried on. Absolutely the wrong approach, and that decision had horrible consequences. I want to talk a little bit now about Nancy Levison. Nancy Levison released two papers on the Therac-25. The first was entitled Investigation of the Therac-25 Accidents in July 1993, co-authored with Clark Turner. The second was entitled Safeware, System Safety and Computers, Medical Devices, the Therac-25 in 1995. Admittedly, she also did a retrospective in 2017, but it didn't have as much technical information regarding the incidents. The problem with the Therac-25 incidents is that full copies of the source code aren't publicly available, nor were large amounts of design information. They considered to be proprietary. There were no detailed, formal investigations held into any of the incidents, although there were multiple lawsuits, most settled out of court. Ms. Levinson and Mr. Turner pulled together accounts from many different sources and assembled them all in one place, and it remains our best understanding of what went wrong. The fact that it came down to these investigators and it was not handled by a formalized, technical, investigative process, though? Don't misunderstand. I'm personally very grateful that they pulled together as much as they did. But the issue is, why wasn't there a formal investigation for each incident made publicly available? There were some investigations done as part of court proceedings, but they are not available. Putting that to one side, though, the turnaround in this whole series of incidents I think happened after incident number five. And we largely have a Texas physicist to thank for not giving up until he could repeat the problem. Fritz Hager was involved in both incidents and ETCC. In researching these incidents, I read both Nancy Levison's papers and an IFAC test document analysis and a few other sources as well. And I'm struck with a lot of gratitude for Fritz Hager. Fritz Hager was the hospital physicist, and he was based at the East Texas Cancer Center in Tyler, Texas. Being troubled by the first incident, he assisted with some of the investigation, but with what appeared from the outside at least to be thorough testing from the manufacturer, nothing further was investigated at that point. But when the second incident occurred, and now there was a common element, the same operator, the same machine, he spent a significant time sitting with that operator, observing how she operated the machine, and systematically work through the steps over and over and over again until he could reliably reproduce the error himself. And the key was speed. The female operator was quite proficient at typing, which at the time wasn't a common skill for a technician operator, and she was a very regular user of that specific machine, and so was able to enter information very quickly. They determined that if the prescription data was edited at a fast enough speed, the machine would fault, overdose, and lead to malfunction 54. This wasn't replicated easily by others testing the machine due to a lack of operator typing proficiency. Once they could repeat the problem, the AECL could replicate it and finally determine after many attempts how to fix the code that was causing the problem. As an aside, this refocus on the software led the AECL following incident number six to look first at the software, not the hardware. What Mr. Hager did was highlight the true frailty of the software in the Therac 25. In effect, Mr. Hager did more thorough, in-depth, end-user testing than the manufacturer did, and without it, I have no doubt that even more lives would have been lost to this machine. So who programmed it? In researching these incidents, it's been a bit different to other cases. Many names are redacted or sealed under court orders and not all the information is publicly available. I tried to find out who programmed the Therac 25 and the only information that I could find, publicly available at least, came from a thread that referenced an AMA, Ask Me Anything. The thread was entitled, My Professor Investigated the Therac 25 Incident and Was Part of the Prosecution. The investigation wasn't made fully public, but the comment is interesting, and I'll quote from the thread. My teacher does know the name of the programmer, but is bound by the courts to not release it. He knows the programmer is living in guilt and did say that he has left programming as his career, although it was not entirely his fault, as my teacher explained, the necessary software development processes for a machine like this was not there and no checks were in place. End quote. So what do we learn from this? 
Ultimately, software can be used to assess the state of safety-critical interlocks. We have many systems like this around the world in nuclear plants, oil and gas, explosives manufacturing, and of course, medical systems like the Tharac. The difference is when we rank the criticality of the worst-case outcome, anything used to protect against a major accident is balanced with additional reliability, whether that's for the sensors by using redundant sensors or whether that's the actuating device, as in fail-safe or dual-redundant fail-safe contactors and so on and so forth. Not only that, the basics of fail-safe wiring, which isn't a catch-all for any issues you might have, but the statistics of having a broken wire or switch are far, far greater than of a constantly shorted connection. Mind you, if you had a constant short and you're expecting a transition, you'll never get one, so fail-safe is still better than not fail-safe. Anyway, not only that, but when I first started working on industrial machine automation, I learned very quickly, telling a machine to do something and it actually doing that thing you told it to do are two separate things. And hence, one of my many programming mantras has become control based on fact, not assumption. If you want to know something is in position, use a position switch. If you really, really want to know something is in position, use redundant position switches. If you want to use software to control what's effectively a death ray, in simple terms, if you get it wrong, then you'd better use a logic solver that uses dual redundant computation paths and uses approved safety functions. But that's easy for me to say in the year 2021. In 1976, the PDP-11 was really not the best choice as a safety controller. At that time, there weren't really safety controllers as we know them today. Although safety controllers were born out of different industries, it came from the same drive at that time, the desire to get away from purely hardwired interlocking and to move to PLCs and controllers or even computers to handle safety systems. It was more the hazardous chemicals industry and oil and gas that drove the development of safety controllers that we use today. So is it fair to judge the Therac 25 by modern standards? I suppose in some ways, no, but there was one big learning to be made here overall, and that is test, test, test your code. The assumption that software doesn't have a failure rate still irritates me even today. I've heard it time and again. Hardwiring fails, it corrodes, it gets eaten by vermin, vibration loosens screws and so on, but software in a CPU never fails. So the problem with that thought process is that it completely misses the point. A hardwired interlock between two points has one purpose, one use, one outcome. It's easy to test and to prove it functions correctly. No problem. Software can have many, many combinations of variables, values, set points, and programmatic pathways between subroutines and functions. And because it's so easy to change it, subsequent changes can create new problems that didn't previously exist. When wired interlocks are changed, it takes considerable effort, and that effort is visible. When software is updated, outwardly, there are no visible signs. When software is updated, it had better be exhaustively tested to make sure that every single code path works exactly as it should for a safety-critical interlock. Modern safety systems are usually also protected by regulations with a strict application of Administrative Management of Change Processes, or MOC, to enforce good test and code change practices by all programmers. Oh, and that also ignores the fact that memory can have its bits flipped by passing cosmic radiation and all that too, which, oddly, they did mention in their note, but didn't consider that to be much of a problem. Checksums, ECC, RAM, and so on, that's a solved problem too. So no, software has a failure rate, or rather... Think of it more like a failure probability, like rolling a dice a million times. The day that number comes up is that rate of failure, in a manner of speaking. So you need to test it properly. An interesting paper entitled A Usage Model-Based Approach to Test the Therac 25 suggests an end-user formal use set of scenarios is used to exhaustively test the system. Whilst I agree with this conceptually, the problem is that defining those use cases can be problematic, since it becomes a bit chicken and the egg. During test formalization, would anyone have predicted miskeying of the treatment method and the up arrow to fix it, misentry, and even considered this as an option when they developed the test cases? The problem with the technology at the time, it was impossible to automatically unit test anything. 
In the world of safety-instrumented systems, we have an enormous grid that shows every option of interlock and action in a cause and effect table, and we test every single one because that's what you need to do when you have a safety-critical system, and they clearly did not do that. The Therac-25 was a machine whose purpose was to carefully control radiation to treat tumours and to help save lives. The problem is that if you got it wrong, it will kill people. And this means failure is not an option. The choice to use the existing mini-computer to take over safety positioning interlocks was a fundamentally flawed one, born most likely out of a cost-reduction mentality or some sense that software was inherently more reliable despite its relative technological youth at that time. Optimism of technological youth, I suppose. I'm not sure we'll ever know the real reason why, but it really doesn't matter in the end. It was the wrong choice. The manufacturer wasn't qualified to make the decision of what controller to use for the safety functions. They also didn't understand how to test it thoroughly, how to troubleshoot it properly, and it took a persistent physicist from Texas to prove to them that it was a software problem before they could even figure out how to fix it. When you're being treated for cancer and you're trying to beat it, you sit in front of the machine and you expect it to do the right thing each and every time. I've had close family and friends that have had radiation therapy, some even quite recently. They have no choice but to trust that whoever designed, built, and tested that machine knew how to do it properly. The victims of the Therac-25 were already fighting cancer. It's so horribly unfair that they were fighting a badly engineered machine as well. And three of them lost. If you're enjoying causality and want to support the show, you can by becoming a patron. You can find details at engineer.network slash causality about how you can help this show to continue to be made. A big thank you to all of our patrons. A special thank you to our silver producers, Mitch Bilger, John Whitlow, Kevin Kosh, Oliver Steele, Leslie, Lord Chan, Hafthor, and Shane O'Neill. An extra special thank you to both of our gold producers, Chip Solzenberg and our producer known as R. Causality is heavily researched and links to all materials used for the creation of this episode are contained in the show notes. You can find them in the text of the episode description of your podcast player or on our website. Causality is a podcasting 2.0 enhanced show and with the right podcast player, you'll have episode locations, enhanced chapters and real-time subtitles on select episodes. There's details on how in the show notes. You can follow me on the Fediverse at Chigi at engineered.space, on Twitter at John Chigi, all one word, or the network at engineered underscore net. This was Causality. I'm John Chigi. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>